It's exciting. Welcome, Grace. Good morning, good people. Um, join me, if you will, in reading uh, Genesis chapter 35 in the Pew Bible. It's on page 29. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves. Change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob saw, excuse me, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, that is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, and so he called its name Alan Bekuth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel, because, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called, the na called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called his name Benjamin. And so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethel, Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And while 
Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father, Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your gracious word. You have not needed to reveal yourself to us, and yet you have. What amazing grace. What a de divine communication of love. And Father, we pray now that by your spirit, you would help us to know it, to understand it. Lord, supremely to submit to it, that we might be changed by your word, and conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ by your word. Lord, we pray that your word would pierce our hearts and lead us where need be to repentance, but encourage each and every one of us here this morning, I pray, to behold by faith the glorious name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Last week when Will preached out of Genesis 34, the chapter just before, we saw what really amounted to what was a rough start for the young nation of Israel, a low point in the life of Jacob. And this was mainly, if you remember, through Jacob's lack of leadership. Remember? When, when Will was preaching and he kept asking throughout the passage last week, where is Jacob? When his daughter Dinah went out by herself to see how the other unbelieving women around her dressed and acted, we asked the question, where was Jacob? When Shechem took advantage of young Dinah, where was Jacob? When Shechem and Hamor asked to marry into the bloodline of Israel, again, the question was there, where was Jacob? And when Levi and Simeon committed genocide in this bloodthirsty revenge over their sister Dinah, where was Jacob? Jacob abdicated his role, didn't he? He, he? he dropped the ball on what it means to be the head of a household, a spiritual leader, a guide to his sons, a protector to his daughters, and the man who sets the spiritual tone for his family's worship. Jacob's absence in Genesis 34 is conspicuous. It's, it's a glaring absence. And the results of Jacob's apathetic abdication well, as we saw last week, it was utter disaster. Chapter 34 was dark. In fact, one of the results was that the name of Jacob, and then by connection, the name of God, 
was made to be a stench to the watching nations all around Jacob. Look back at, at chapter 34, verse 30. Chapter 34, verse 30. When Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, to the people living in this land. We're meant to see Jacob and Israel's actions here as reverberating outward as a reflection of the God they claimed to worship. Their sin made them obnoxious among their neighbors, and therefore the God that they claimed to worship was obnoxious to their neighbors. That has profound implications for us today, doesn't it? For those of us who worship the same God. When we bear the name Christian, but then live in a way that is consistently and characteristically unreflective of the name we bear, the name of Christ, then not only do we dishonor Christ, but we serve as a kind of anti-witness of Christ to a watching world. When people see you live and act and talk in a way that is characteristically unchristlike, and yet you keep on going around talking about I'm a Christian this and I'm a Christian that, and I go to that Christian church, you are dragging the gospel through the mud. You're giving false advertisement to the power of God's saving grace. People will think when they look at you, well, those Christians are really no different than me. Why do I need to believe in their God if all I'm going to get is pretty much the same thing of what I am right now? Which is incidentally why we take church discipline so seriously here at Greenbelt Baptist Church. If you are a member and you are claiming to be a Christian, and let's just say, for instance, for example, you are also a racist that likes to go to the KKK rally on Saturday nights. And you think that there's no contradiction in that. We, as a gospel church, have to protect the gospel and will confront you and say, hey, racist brother Joe, you cannot do that and be a Christian at the same time. To which when he says, yes, I can, we as a church will do church discipline and say, we don't think you're a Christian. You're confused about the gospel, but we won't be. And we don't want the outside watching world to look at you and think that that's what the gospel means. You're excommunicated. That's what church discipline means. That's what it means for take us to take our lives seriously. I want us to see that because the repercussions for how we live as Christians is incredibly serious. To say the same thing differently, if we live hypocritically, that has profound consequences for our unbelieving friends. The eternal lives of those friends and family members and neighbors around us, of those people watching us, where they spend eternity is often determined, at least from a human perspective, on how you live your life as a Christian. So often, our Christian witness, our ability to share the gospel with someone will stand or fall according to the kind of life you live. I say all that in order to give context to what comes next, because what comes next is really the most wild thing about this entire passage. I mean, it blows my mind how this morning's passage, chapter 35, begins in light of the utter failure we just saw in chapter 34. If chapter 34 is arguably the, the darkest chapter in Genesis, then chapter 35 has to be the most surprising. Look at verse 1. 
Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. The very fact that there is a chapter 35, that the story didn't just end right there with Jacob's abdication and complete failure as a, as a man of God, and that God decides to still reach out to and to call Jacob back to worship, if that doesn't punch you in the heart with the reality of God's grace, I don't know what will. And remember the context here. We're close to 30 years earlier. Jacob, on the run as a, as a fugitive from home, had spent the night 30 years earlier or so at Bethel, and there he had his famous vision of the ladder with the angels going up and down and and at the top of that staircase was God where God spoke to Jacob and gave Jacob the promise that he would be his God and that he would be with Jacob and bring him back into the land of Canaan and that there in that land God would make him to be a great nation and so this call this this command here this morning in in verse one it's God calling Jacob back to that promise It's God calling Jacob back to himself. It was at Bethel where Jacob met with God. Not not the land of Shechem where Jacob is now, where he's been living and he's been making these mistakes. It's Bethel, Hebrew for the house of God. Go back to God, Jacob. Go back to Bethel. He's saying, your time at Shechem has been nothing but bad for you. The decisions you're making there are spiritually destructive for you. Your children are not only living hypocritical lives, you know, using their religion to do sinful things, but it seems like they're becoming more and more like the unbelieving nations that you're living among. Dinah, wanting to dress and act like the Shechemite women. And apparently, look there in verse 2, Jacob and his descendants also started holding on to and perhaps even worshiping the idols, the false gods of those surrounding people. Jacob was not leading his family well. And they were descending more and more into this unbelief. And the effects of this were evident. And this is why verse 1 is so wild to me. God still calls Jacob. Get up and go to Bethel. Do you see how God in his wonderful grace has not left Jacob to himself? God is not done with him. Even though Jacob has acted as if he's done with God, right? When Jacob was faithless, here in verse 1, we see God is faithful. And so take note here how God still calls out to him. How he still gives his command to Jacob and essentially says to Jacob, you need to come back to worshiping me in the way I've directed you to. I promised I would be your God at Bethel. So arise, go to Bethel and worship me there. In other words, I love you too much to let you go on living like you have been. Friends, this is nothing other than the amazing grace of God displayed right here in the text. Jacob had just plummeted into sin back in chapter 34. And yet here in chapter 35, we see the renewed grace of God continuing to call and to lead Jacob. He's not given his redeemed son up. There's a renewed conviction. This is typical, isn't it? of how God acts with all of his redeemed children. He doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us to keep pursuing foolishness and unrighteousness. But he he convicts us. 
And he graciously reminds us that we, just like Jacob here, we need to go to our Bethel. As a side note, if you've never been convicted over sin, you've got to call your Christianity into question. What we're going to see in the rest of this chapter is how Jacob responds to God's grace. The, the whole account is dripping in God's gracious restoration of a fallen believer. And so we need to see how Jacob, like any true believer, reacts accordingly. In this chapter, Jacob listens and he obeys, he, he goes. Which means to say, Jacob, look, look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, but Lord, I've sinned too much. I went too far in chapter 34, so, so how could there ever possibly be for me a chapter 35? I, I can't go to Bethel. I'm not worthy to go. Friends, if that's you this morning, if you're afraid to come back and worship God and to, to be within the, the worship service of God at, at, at church because you think you're unworthy, Will you further disobey God by rejecting his offer of grace? Sure, you, you've spurned God before by living among and living like the unbelieving Shechemites of Genesis 34, but will you spurn God still by refusing his offer of grace? How often are we tempted, perhaps after a week of bad decisions or falling badly into the mire of temptation, to now hide and, you know, wallow under the cover of our own fig leaves and like Adam and Eve, run and hide from God. And how rebellious this is, especially in light of his call to you to return. That God still reaches out and says, come to me and worship me and enjoy my forgiveness in Christ. We often think we cannot come and worship God because we're unworthy, when in reality, that kind of response is nothing but disbelief. The gospel is for those of us who are unworthy. God's grace is offered to us precisely because we're not worthy. We can't get right with God by ourselves. And so to say no to God's redeeming love because I feel unworthy is nothing more than adding insult to injury. If you're here this morning in church for the first time in a long time, or maybe you're here in church for the first time ever, welcome to one local iteration of the house of God. Verse 1 is for you. Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. God offers his grace. Don't say no to that. If verse 1 is God's gracious invitation... And then verse 2 and following highlight Jacob's penitent restoration. His penitent restoration. Verse 2 and 3. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. This is... This is important for us to see for a couple of reasons. One, the way Jacob responds shows us the response of a true believer. I mean, he understands here, doesn't he? He understands that God isn't just asking him to, to pick up camp and, and make a road trip to Bethel. Right? This isn't God leading him to move just for the sake of moving. 
No, there's something deeper in God's call. Something that's getting at Jacob's heart. And so Jacob knows that he needs to do some serious spring cleaning in his life and in his family's life, bringing them, himself and his family, to a place of penitence and restoration. And so what does Jacob say? He says, family, throw away your idols. Put away all your false gods. Go wash yourselves, right? Go purify yourselves. And then he says, change your clothes. In other words, you're beginning to worship like these pagan nations. You now have the aroma of these pagan nations, and you look like these pagan nations. But we belong to Yahweh, and God has called us to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart for Yahweh. And so if we're going to go back to Bethel to worship Yahweh, we've got to go back with pure hearts with repentant hearts. I think Jacob realizes that even if the worship of God is to happen at Bethel as God has directed him, what's more important is the kind of heart Jacob has when he comes to Bethel. That when he comes to worship God, he's got to do so in true repentance. Humility. A confession of who he's been and who he is before a holy God. In one sense, Jacob's been flirting with idolatry for a long time, right? He's been flirting with idolatry ever since his wife Rachel stole those little gods, remember that, that belonged to Laban back in chapter 31? And apparently, just like sin always does, this idolatry problem that that Jacob kind of looked over, it festered and it spread What began with a little leeway with Rachel had grown into a massive problem that apparently all of Jacob's family in verse 2 was now giving themselves over to. Read earlier last week of a description of indwelling sin within a believer. Talking about the indwelling sin like a cute, cuddly little um, baby tiger. It's just soft, tiny, and warm with big eyes beautiful stripes that you just want to hold and so you feed it and you nurture it and you love it and you coddle it until one day as that tiger grows and grows and grows it becomes a beast and it devours you isn't that how God describes sin in Genesis 4 roaring around like a crouching tiger ready to devour you we we coddle our little sins thinking oh this is something tiny no one knows this but me watch what happens as it grows Jacob is flirting with this, and it's become a problem with his family. So now Jacob, he draws a line in the sand. He says, no more. And, and, and it looks like God, I think, is moving Jacob to real repentance here. He, he, he's making Jacob to be a man that takes his faith seriously. No longer a man that stays quiet when his family gives into sin, but now he's a man who leads. There's a lot of notes here for for fathers and husbands. If chapter 34 depicted Jacob as this kind of pushover who abdicates his role as spiritual leader, here we see Jacob as the man who leads. He's a Puritan in the best sense of what it means to be a Puritan. He's taking the worship of our pure God seriously. Put away your idols, family. Be as pure as God is pure. We're going to Bethel and we're going to worship God. 
So I think Jacob is reminding us here that what's always included in a right response to God's gracious invitation is the repentant renunciation of all our false gods. Repentance over all of our false idols. We should read this passage and think, what idols am I clinging on to? What gods am I giving my time and, and my attention and my devotion to that's limiting my worship of God? Have I made my career an idol? Do I put my work and making money over and above God? Have I made my family an idol? Do I love my kids and my spouse or or do I even love the idea of having a family as more important than God, as something that will give me my deepest identity? Perhaps I've made the idea of finding a spouse my God. Do you think that you'll finally be fulfilled once you get married? That that's the end goal? If so, God is not the source of your deepest joy and identity. Maybe your God is pleasure, be it the pleasure of relaxation, and the mindless numbing of entertainment? Does Instagram, Netflix, Amazon Prime videos, or even the constant barrage of news and politics when you first wake up to read and take it all in, does that take precedence over your prayer life and the reading of the Bible and the reading of good spiritual books? Is your God the God of sex and lust? Perhaps it's the pleasure of food and drink. Do you see? Whatever idol you have, Jacob is modeling for us here true repentance. This is fundamental in understanding worship, which is why earlier when Kevin read, we need to put to death the deeds of our flesh. Our idols are indwelling here. It's our hearts that create those nasty little idols. Kill them. Bury them. And this is symbolized, I think, in the changing of clothes. It was an outward expression of an inward reality. This changing of clothes is likely where the Apostle Paul got his metaphor in Ephesians 4 for a changed life, where he says that believers, true Christians, are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to then put on the new self, created as we now are in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Jacob's pilgrimage from Shechem to Bethel would be one of repentance, the putting off of old clothes, old self, our old lifestyle, and one of a continued, renewed devotion of God, the putting on of a new clothes. We see that made real, I think, in verse 4, don't we? So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. This is really such a dismissive action. I love it. Uh, it's an insult to the futility that these false gods represented. They buried them because they were dead. <laughs> they buried under a nondescript tree to be forgotten forever. They're not living gods. They're not gods. Bury them. So it is with us, dear Christian. We also have to bury all the false gods we've held on to. Bury all the idols that have kept us from a full and right worship of God. If you have, if you have never separated yourself from something that your heart has been too attached to, if you've never had to deny yourself and give up that thing that's had control over your life, some kind of control over your time, some kind of control over your heart's devotion, 
you've never had to step out into the light and ask a close friend or perhaps ask a pastor to help you break away from a certain habit or a certain relationship, well, then you might be doing it wrong. You very well may be missing out on what it means to respond rightly to God's grace. God called Jacob, and Jacob responded. He repented. He buried his idols, and then he put on new clothes. A lot of you might have new clothes on, but you've never purified yourself. You've never put away your idols. What idols have you buried? What idols do you need to bury? Friends, don't leave here this morning still coddling that little sin. Look at how God preserves Jacob. Remember after the massacre of the Shechemites, Jacob had angrily scolded his sons for their actions. We read it earlier. But not because of the immorality of what they did, but because he was afraid, I think, of the retaliation that would ensue from all the other tribes and nations. But look at verse 5. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. What we see here is nothing more than God's sovereign mercy, his protective hand guarding and guiding his people. But we need to be clear. God does do this for his people all the time, but he doesn't have to, right? We're not saying that if you believe in God, then you somehow automatically get to enjoy this kind of protective guiding by God. No. Oftentimes, God allows evil men to besiege and kill and, and persecute his own people. And God is still good when that happens. He's still wise when he allows that to happen. God is not our divine bodyguard. He can guard us. Oftentimes, he does guard us. But ultimately, God is God. He is our wise king. We serve him. And if he sees fit to allow his own sons and daughters to die and perish through persecution, well then praise God. Just read the New Testament. I think you'll be hard-pressed to find any of God's faithful servants there also not undergo severe persecution. What, was God not able to guard them? Of course he was. Didn't our own master Jesus Christ die cruelly at the hands of state persecution? Are we greater than our master Jesus? Nonetheless, with that caveat that we need to give, what we see here in verse 5 is God's powerful mercy. He's able to strike fear into anyone he wants and, and, and preserve unto safety his own children. And I think we ought to be praying for that all the time. It's good to ask God for his hand of protection. Pray it for your children, for your family. And in keeping with the context here, I think it's especially good to pray for God's protective hand when it comes to our worship. Asking God to allow us to live quiet lives of peace so that we can worship him. And, and in that protective peace, call others around us to do the same. Just take that thought for a second. We know from scripture that when we witness and evangelize, the immediate natural reaction will be one of hatred. How dare you judge me? I don't need your gospel. And the hatred of Christ and the gospel of Christ inevitably a lot of times leads to a hatred of the messenger of Christ. 
but we really want them to be saved. And so we pray for God to protect us so that as we continue to witness, people might come to saving faith, that he might overcome that hatred. And he can do it. So often God does allow pain and suffering even to break in upon our lives. And I think he does it in order oftentimes to draw us more closely to himself, to bring us into a deeper reliance of who he is. We can't kind of box God in here. God will do what he does. He'll protect us how he sees fit. Did you notice how this chapter is filled with a particular kind of sorrow? When Don read through it earlier. There are three deaths in this chapter. The death of Deborah in verse 8. The death of Rachel in verse 19. And then the death of Isaac, his father, in verse 29. All three people whom Jacob loved dearly. I think this is where we see God's sanctifying grace in Jacob's life. It's not so much the protective mercy of verse 5, but more so in this pain. Wherein and through these deaths, God is bringing Jacob to find his deepest satisfaction not in the wife whom Jacob loved with a, really with a kind of idolatrous love, but his deepest satisfaction in God. We see a changed Jacob here. And for, for decades, right, Jacob's heart melted for Rachel. She was the apple of his eye. From the moment he first saw her, he was, he was head over heels. And his love never grew cold. As we've seen in previous chapters, whatever Rachel wanted, Jacob made sure Rachel got. But look closely at this scene in verses 16 through 21. Here's Jacob holding in his arms his, his brand new baby boy whom Rachel had just delivered. And, and, and she's dying. Here her body is going cold. And she says to Jacob, name the boy Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. The author, I think, is making the point here of showing us that these are her last words. And we're meant to expect here that Jacob, the typical Jacob that we've known, a man in love, a man who's probably most prone to listen here to the last wish of his beloved dying bride, the idol of his heart, we're expecting him to say, okay, my dear, whatever you ask for, I'll forever remember you and mourn your dying with the name Ben-Oni. But he doesn't. This is a revived Jacob. He's leading his family spiritually, and he's leading even his dying wife here. And he takes the authority of the father, and he names his noon son Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. This isn't the old passive Jacob anymore. And I, I think the text underlying this point in kind of flashing neon lights, the author gives us another clue in verse 21. After Rachel dies, we're told that Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Now, we've known already that God changed Jacob's name to Israel, right? That's, that's not new. But this right here, this text, is the first time in Genesis where we actually see Jacob referred to as Israel. And there's a reason for that. Because this is the very first time in Genesis where he's acting like Israel. He's a new man. He's a man newly devoted to God. And here he is when his greatest love has been taken away by death. What does Jacob do? He doesn't wallow in the sadness and sorrow of Ben-Oni. 
No, he renames his son to Benjamin, the son I delight in, the son of my right hand. Doesn't Jacob's renaming here mirror almost perfectly the way in which God renames Jacob back up in verses 9 through 15? You see that? I think Jacob is saying is that even in the midst of death and sorrow, even in the midst of those times in life where things are dark and hard and it feels like my heart is being ripped out of me, his wife just died. Even in light of severe sin, in times of backsliding and idolatry, in light of all that we saw in Genesis 34, in light of all of that, he's saying God is still good and God is still in control. God has named me and he is watching over me and he will not let me go. Friends, there is so much encouragement in this. And I, I, I don't want us to pass over it too quickly. I think we're often prone to focusing on either there's those moments of pain or maybe even worse, maybe we're prone to staying focused on our failures, on our sin and our struggle. Add to that the accuser called Satan who was constantly whispering to us in our ear how unworthy and how broken we are, who's constantly bringing up our past failures and our present temptations and our sins, and he's working night and day to have us doubt God's grace in our lives. But here we see our God who brings assurance to Jacob through his new name. As a redeemed man, he is known to God as Israel. And that should amaze us. Even after Jacob sinned, Badly in chapter 34, God doesn't change. You're still my Israel. Friends, if you're a believer in Christ, the same is just as true of you now and will be true forevermore on into eternity. The devil knows your name, but will always call you by your sins. God knows your sins, but in Christ will always call you by your name. Be encouraged, dear brother or sister who is doubting God's grace in your life? Have you repented and trusted in the finished work of Christ, believing in him alone as your righteousness, as your sole redeemer? Do you believe that in his death all your sin was punished by God and your pardon was sealed by his blood? And that in his resurrection he has given you new life and is even now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf by name? Friends, if you trust in that Jesus, then you have a new name. You have a name that can never be taken away. It is the name of Christ. You are a Christian. And just as Jacob would forevermore be seen as Israel, so you and I will always be seen as Christian. All your sin, past, present, future, was dealt with in Christ. Friends, never let go of that name. Believe in Christ. Cling to Christ. When you sin and fall and the devil is there sneering his accusations and weighing down your heart with guilt, claim the name that God has given you. Tell him you believe in Christ and that that name will never be punished again for God the Father has already punished Christ fully at the cross. But now that he's alive and he's overcome death, the name of Christ will never die again. What other name can we cling to? What other name can we bring with us into death and before the judgment seat of God? Friends, no, that's the only name I know.
the only name I will cherish and the only name I will call my own. From now and forever, I am a Christian because God in Christ sees me as a Christian. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we, we want to focus on your grace today, Lord, that though you constantly are teaching us and growing us and nurturing us, you speak to us and you love us, Lord, yet how often we sin, how often we, we forget you, how often we fall and make mistakes. Lord, yet despite our mistakes, you show us so much grace, so much undeserved mercy, Lord, you of all, all living, creature, uh, living things, Lord, you truly and alone see the horrors of sins. You see the perversion of sins. You and your perfect purity and your righteousness can, can alone see the horrors of sins that we commit. And yet, Lord, you show Jacob and his sons and his family great mercy and grace. And you show us the same mercy and grace in Christ to us. Lord, give us gratitude and thanksgiving. Help us to understand how deep your grace is to us. Lord, we also pray that you would help us to see the horrors of sin. Help us to see that sin isn't that cute, cuddly animal, but Lord, it is truly a monster waiting to devour us. We often don't see that. We often downplay our sin. Lord, we pray that you would give us your perspective also on sin in light of your purity and righteousness, help us to see the perversions of sin and the horrors of sin. Lord, help us to treat sin seriously and help us to bury and kill our sin. Lord, we pray for satisfaction in you. Um, oftentimes we sin because we are looking for these things for our satisfaction. Lord, we confess that we often seek our happiness and joy in other things besides you. Lord, we know that oftentimes the cure for our sin is just looking to you and finding satisfaction in who you are and who we are in Christ. Lord, we pray then for satisfaction in you that we might be able to live and be enabled to, to do things that honor you and live lives that honor you. Lord, remind us that this, this is not just something for us, but oftentimes uh, our, our testimony matters. The way we live our lives impacts how people see you and your, your son. Lord, as Steve preached, we know that our lives can serve as an anti-witness when we live in unrepentant sin. So Lord, we pray that you would help us overcome our sin, that we might uh, be satisfied in you, live lives that honor you, and that people would come to, to call on your name also, as we have learned to call on your name Lord, we want others to find satisfaction in your grace, to, to experience your grace in the way we have too. Lord, we want to pray lastly for your hand of protection. We pray that you would protect us, not only our bodies, but our spirits especially, and this church and the way we worship you. You ask for worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, protect us that we might be uh, worshiping you in sincerity, praying to you in purity, 
And Lord, we, we pray for your hand of protection in that. Lord, protect us and our families and our children that um, Lord, nothing would come in the way of um, us knowing you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And the New Testament actually uses this illustration of, of uh, in our sanctification, this 